Hey everybody, welcome to Come Follow Me Daily Dose. I'm Lindsay Hansen and today is September 16th. Today we're going to talk about Isaiah chapter 29. Now Isaiah chapter 29 in the heading is compared to 2 Nephi 27. 2 Nephi 27 is far superior. Nephi will embellish and expand on what we see here in Isaiah chapter 29. But for all intents and purposes, let's go into chapter 29 and study from chapter 29. So let's start in verse 1. It says, Woe unto Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow. It shall be unto me as Ariel. Now, in order to understand this, it's important to understand that Ariel is another name for the city of Jerusalem. And it's also important to understand that by this time in the Bible, Jerusalem a lot of times was just a word that they used to define the tribe of Judah. Oftentimes when they talked about Judah, they would just say Jerusalem. So as we know, at this time, the tribe of Judah and the city of Jerusalem were very wicked. Isaiah has been talking about that through all the chapters previously. And today we're going to start to see a solution for that wickedness. Now, it's interesting because here in this chapter, Isaiah is going to talk about that wickedness and the destruction that's going to come because of that wickedness. And we know that that will be true. This is another example of dualistic prophecy, a prophecy that's true for multiple time periods. This is going to be true for the Jews in Babylon. It's going to be true for Jerusalem, a few other times in history, but it also applies to another place as well. Let's continue on in these verses and see if we can see another time period that it might be talking about. Verse three says, and I will camp against thee round about and will lay siege against thee with a mount. And I will raise forts against thee, and thou shalt be brought down and shall speak out of the ground, and thy speech shall be low out of the dust. Now, this is a scripture, this is a verse that rings so true for us in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because we consider the Book of Mormon to be a voice from the dust. And so here, when we're talking about a dualistic prophecy and Isaiah talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, yes, that's absolutely true. But notice what it says at the end of verse two. He says, it shall be unto me as Ariel. Well, if he's going to be talking about it, something, some other city that's going to be like Jerusalem in that destruction. And then later he's going to go down and he's going to speak about the Nephite nation being a voice from the dust. Then it would stand to reason that that it that's being spoken of there is the Nephite nation. And that Isaiah is saying that that Nephite nation, that voice that is going to cry from the dust and teach from the dust will eventually be to the Lord as Ariel, as Jerusalem that there would be a destruction among the nation of the Nephites. And we know that that is true, that that happened. So I love those scriptures there and that dualistic prophecy where we see Bible truth and we see Book of Mormon truth come together in one prophecy. 
This kind of seems to be the chapter for Bible and Book of Mormon prophecy coming together. Let's take a look at some verses that are very, very special to the Latter-day Saints. Leading up to these chapters, Isaiah is going to be talking about the wickedness of the people. And let's look at the solution. Starting in verse 11, it says, And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. Now for Latter-day Saints, this scripture is amazing because we see it as a prophecy that was fulfilled in church history. If you'll remember, Martin Harris was a super skeptical guy. That was something that was a big takeaway for me last year as we were studying the Doctrine and Covenants, as we studied Martin Harris, just seeing how skeptical he was and how much he needed reassurance from the Lord. And here in this church history story, it is no different. He had been talking to Joseph a lot about the Book of Mormon and about the translation of the Book of Mormon, but he was still very, very unsure. He had already stated that if it was true and that if he could receive a witness that it was true, that he would put everything behind it, but that he needed that sure witness. And so we all know the story. He takes characters and the translation of those characters to a man named Charles Anton. Now, it's interesting. He actually stopped at a few other scholars first. The first guy that he took him to, we don't know anything about what happened in that visit. The second guy that he took him to compared them to some other hieroglyphs that he had and said that they were the language of a people formerly in existence in the East, but now no more. But then that guy actually recommended that he go see Charles Anthon in New York. Now, the fascinating thing about the story of Charles Anthon in church history is that for members of the church, it is such a strong I don't want to say evidence, but it's just such a neat story confirming this prophecy in Isaiah and confirming the Book of Mormon. For people who are against the church, it almost serves the opposite purpose. People will point to this story as the fact that, oh, this can't be true. The Book of Mormon can't be true. And I wanted to talk about why. According to church history, this is what happened. Martin Harris says, I went to the city of New York and presented the characters which had been translated with the translation thereof to Professor Charles Anthon. Professor Anthon stated that the translation was correct, more so than any he had seen translated from Egyptian. I then showed him those which were not yet translated, and he said that they were Egyptian. He gave me a certificate certifying to the people of Palmyra that they were true characters and that the translation of such of them that had been translated was also correct. I took the certificate and put it into my pocket and was just leaving the house when Mr. Anthon called me back and asked how the young man had found that there were gold plates in the place that he found them. I answered that an angel of God had revealed it unto him. He then said unto me, let me see that certificate and tore it to pieces, saying that there was no such thing now as the ministering of angels. Now, the interesting thing to me here is that Martin Harris immediately went home. He recorded the incident and he immediately mortgaged his farm to finance the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. For him, he had received validation that the work that was being done was true. 
that the characters were true, that the translation was true. He had received witness that it was true. What's interesting, though, is that Charles Anthon never spoke about this situation until well after the publishing of the Book of Mormon. And when his name began to be attached to that publication, he then wrote a letter saying, oh, no, 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 that didn't happen. Now, people who would use church history to disprove the restoration of the gospel point to that letter and they say, oh, look at this, it can't be true. But my friends, clearly, even here in the story that Martin Harris tells, it's clear that Charles Anthon wants nothing to do with this idea of angels, this idea of the coming forth of a new church. He wanted to distance himself from that. So why would we expect him later, six, seven, eight years later, to be like, oh, yep, mm -hmm, it's all true? For me, Martin Harris's reaction to that incident tells me everything that I need to know, that he received validation that those were true characters and that they had been translated correctly. He went home and he mortgaged everything. He put everything on the line because he had received a validation of truth. But my friends, that's not where testimonies are gained. Testimonies aren't gained in those neat stories. Testimonies aren't gained by earthly physical evidence. Later in this chapter, Isaiah says, therefore, I will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder among this people. My friends, on top of all the other evidences that I've seen of the truthfulness of the gospel, and on top of all the other validations that I felt from the Spirit that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true, one of the greatest ways that we can know is by witnessing the marvelous work and wonder that is the restored Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Look at what we do. Look at what we accomplish. Look at the good that the members of the church do in blessing and reaching out and serving other people. Truly, my friends, we can see the truthfulness of the church in the marvelous work that is done within it. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're enjoying this podcast, make sure to follow us on social media, subscribe, like, comment, or share. This has been Come Follow Me, Daily Dose, and I'm Lindsay Hansen.